we have entered a bright new era in the history of the Europeans. This is the first ever episode released on a Thursday, our new day. Isn't it exciting? It's really discombobulating. I don't think it will change people's lives very much, but it does mean that our recording sessions are less likely to coincide with my upstairs neighbour vacuuming extremely vigorously. And that seems like a good thing. Do they only do that on a Tuesday? It's either a Monday or a Tuesday. So it was always annoying for us. I wish I was the kind of person that had like a weekly routine with hoovering a day that I did it every week. That would be so good. Start the week outright. Uh, how has your week been? Fine. I'm back at rehearsal, which is nice and strange, obviously, in this weird world we live in. Are you all singing like super spaced out with like three metres between you? Not so spaced out. It's only 1.5 metres because apparently we've got like world class ventilation. But yeah, it's really strange being in a room with 25 people. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I was in a big group of people this week and it was very, very strange indeed. Weird feeling, but quite a nice feeling. Look forward to talking about that later. But uh, first, I'll tell everyone what we've got coming up in the show. This week, the week of International Women's Day, we have a very special guest, Marta Lempart. Marta initiated and has been leading the Polish women's strike this week absolutely enormous protest movement which swelled in response to the near total ban on abortion in Poland that was announced in October last year. Marta will be joining us later on the show to tell us all about her experiences leading this protest movement but first it's time for Good Week Bad Week. Who's had a bad week, Katie? It's been a bad week for the Hungarian political party Fidesz, the party of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. And it's been a bad week for them because they are splitting up with their political family in Europe. And it's all been rather ugly. Finally. This is one of those stories that if you're not a Brussels bubble nerd and you don't follow EU politics super closely, it is slightly hard to get your head around. But I am going to do my best to untangle it for you. Are you ready? Go for it. I think I have become a Brussels bubble nerd recently, by the way. Just got to admit that. Congratulations. Thank you. I feel kind of ashamed and proud at the same time. Anyway, go. Nothing to be ashamed of. Right. So super simplified Brussels explainer. The European Parliament is more or less like a national parliament in that the members organise themselves into these big blocks based on their political persuasion. So all the left wing MEPs hang out together, all the centrist slash liberal MEPs hang out together, etc. They are basically political parties, but on a supra European scale. The biggest and most powerful of these groupings is the European People's Party, the EPP. They have traditionally represented the centre-right, the kind of mainstream right. Uh, Angela Merkel's party is in there. The French Républicains are in there. And until now, rather problematically, Fidesz have also been in there. Why is that a problem? I hear you cry. Do I hear you cry? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) You're crying. I'm crying. We're all crying. It was a problem because Fidesz have been in power in Hungary for a decade now. And a lot of Europe has basically watched in horror as the country has become increasingly authoritarian under this party. There is virtually no independent media left. The courts aren't really independent anymore. There's been this war on the Central European University, which we talked about a few times. Just generally alarming developments in a country which is supposedly a democratic EU member. 
Timothy Gardner said that they're not even a democracy anymore. Yeah, I mean, people talk about Hungary as being a kind of hybrid country these days, right? Yeah. Which is scary. Uh, and this has made things really awkward for the EPP, because when you're part of the same political party or political family, you're supposed to present a united front, right? Your ability to slag off your party colleagues is quite limited. So for years, being in the EPP has offered Orban quite a lot of political protection. He hasn't been opposed nearly as much within the EU as he might have been, even if quite a lot of individual members of the EPP have been campaigning to get Fidesz kicked out of the EPP for years. So I have a question because the thing that happened last week, I read that they quit the party, but then there's still conversations happening within the party about whether to expel them. And I found it really confusing. Yeah, I also got really confused by some of the news reports. I felt like I had to go and sit in a dark room for a few hours to really understand what happened. Okay, so the thing that you need to know is that Fidesz have not yet been kicked out of the European People's Party. They are still part of the party itself, and there's going to be a vote on expelling them at some point. But that has to be a physical face-to-face -face meeting. And no one knows when that might be because COVID. What's actually happened is slightly less dramatic than that. And that is that the 12 Fidesz MEPs who sit physically in the parliament, they have left the EPP group, which is to say those 12 people aren't going to get to go to all the meetings with their EPP friends. They're going to lose some jobs in parliamentary committees, stuff like that. But the party as a whole is still a member. Correct. And so did these MEPs jump or were they pushed? So this is probably the juiciest bit of the drama. They were about to be pushed out. So basically on Wednesday last week, the MEPs from the EPP all got together and they voted to change the rules of the group. So previously it's been possible to kick out a single member from the parliamentary group and they voted to change the rules so that you could kick out a whole national party delegation. Orban was really cross about that. He said it looked like this rule change looked like it had been introduced specifically to target Fidesz, which isn't the most unreasonable thing he's ever said. And he was so cross about this that as soon as the vote was passed, I think it was minutes later, in fact, he published a letter to the EPP group that basically said, well, you think you can kick us out? Well, you can't because we quit. You're fired. I quit. Exactly. And hilariously, the letter was signed, kind regards, which I think is really fun and passive aggressive. Okay, so these MEPs are outside of the party group, but the party is still in the party. Um, what does it mean for these MEPs now that they aren't sitting with their old friends in the EPP? Yeah, this is the big question, I think. And it, I don't think it's really clear yet what it means overall. It's definitely true that being in this big, powerful, conservative group has really protected Fidesz. And it's something that has helped enable Orban in turning Hungary into an authoritarian country. But Fidesz has actually been suspended from the EPP for the last couple of years anyway, a temporary suspension. And it's not like that has really made it easier in any noticeable way to stop the Hungarian government doing what it's doing. And I think that's because, you know, it's not like the EPP have been Hungary's only enablers, you know. National governments have also really helped protect Hungary from criticism. And I'm thinking particularly of governments like Poland, which also gets accused a lot of being authoritarian, but also Bulgaria, Slovenia, and also Germany. Uh, the German Conservatives, of which Merkel is a member, they've always had a really close relationship with the Hungarian Conservatives, and she has sometimes been reluctant to rein them in. And the fact that the other governments have been willing to let Hungary do what it's doing, that isn't going to change if Hungary leaves the EPP. I think the immediate consequences of last week's drama are actually going to be not that dramatic. 
the MEPs leaving the parliamentary group, it means that they'll lose some money, they'll lose some influence. But the big question is actually, what's going to happen next? Are they going to try and join a new group? Orban has already said that in terms of who he sees as Hungary's allies in Europe, it's the Polish ruling party, it's Matteo Salvini, it's Giorgia Meloni. So further down the line, we might see a new populist alliance emerging with those kind of people in it. It's also going to have some implications for the EPP, doesn't it? Because I believe that the money that's allocated to these party groupings is dependent on how many MEPs they have. And now they have fewer MEPs, so they can have fewer staff and less money. And actually, they might have to get rid of some of their vice presidencies of the parliament, according to our friend Pele Gertsen, uh, who spoke on the show before. I was reading a Twitter thread from him that was very interesting. Hearing you talk, you have become such a Brussels nerd. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. It's because we made that Bursting the Bubble series and I feel like the bubble has been burst for me, genuinely. I'm glad to hear it. Um, People should go back and listen to that miniseries. It's on the front page of our website still. And if you are sort of lost in the web of confusion that is uh, Brussels politics, I think it's a pretty good place to start. Who has had a good week? It's been a good week for Maren Eggert after she won the first ever gender non-specific acting award at the Berlin Film Festival. So up until now, they've given out Best Actor and Best Actress awards. And this year they decided to scrap the gender divide and just give out one award for Best Performance and one for Best Supporting Performance. I personally like this move for multiple reasons. Uh, Yeah, firstly, the decision is more inclusive for non-binary and genderqueer people who don't fit into either male or female categories. That would be enough of a reason. But Mm -hmm. also, why have we been dividing actors by gender anyway? They're doing exactly the same job. It's one of those things I think in 100 years time, we're going to look back on it and think, well, that was weird. What a weird and unnecessary way to arrange things. Yeah, we don't do it in other industries. I mean, we probably do do it in some industries, but I mean, we don't have best male teacher and best female teacher at the teacher awards. I'm not <laughs> sure that, that was a very bad example. You know, the teacher awards. <laughs> anyway, they've all got the same job of pretending to be other people in front of a camera. Um, and I don't think gender's got anything to do with it. Tilda Swinton described the decision as eminently sensible. And Kate Blanchett said that she'd always referred to herself as an actor. She said, I am of the generation where the word actress was used almost always in a pejorative sense. So I claim the other space. Mm. What do you think, Katie? The one thing I'm worried about is that if we did it like this in general, and I do think it's a good idea, but it would mean half the number of prizes, which means way less people get to be congratulated for their work. But I think there's other ways of doing it. Uh, My boyfriend suggested this morning that maybe we should have prizes for best funny performance, best sad performance and best shouty performance. (laughs) I mean, they kind of do that at the Golden Globes. Uh, They divide it between comedy and drama. But I like I like your boyfriend's distinctions better. Yeah, I, I also think that could be an unintended consequence. Also, giving out fewer awards means that the people who get awards will be a smaller cross-section of society or be inevitably less diverse. Um, And this year, women won both awards, um, but maybe next year, both awards could go to men. And how will that look? That's true. In this time where everyone's realising that gender parity is a serious problem in the film industry. They could like decide to one year give both awards to men, one year give both awards to women, but then that defeats the point or at least some of the point. So I hope they don't do that. That's why we have to go for best funny performance, best sad performance and best shouty performance. 
Small prizes. <laughs> I think this solves it perfectly. Although the problem is then they'll like inevitably give all the funny performances to men because all these award ceremonies always think that men are the only people that can be funny. Anyway, I was wondering, Katie, do you think that we could be falling into a trap just like they have in France when they don't know how to talk about race because they don't see race? Mm. And these award ceremonies now don't acknowledge gender. So, yeah, that doesn't mean gender disparity goes away. Yeah, good point. That could be part of the fallout of this. The other thing I'm wondering is, I always look at those people sitting at, you know, award ceremonies like the Oscars or the César here in France, and people do really look bored, like clapping for this long. <laughs> so maybe it's quite a good idea to just cut the ceremonies in half, although obviously it does create all the problems you just talked about. It's true. I, I actually am not really convinced by that argument I just made about gender disparity because the Berlin Film Festival are actually doing quite a lot to try and improve the balance in their organisation. They signed this 50-50 by 2020 pledge a few years ago, which is a gender parity pledge signed by some film festivals following Me Too. And they are really making progress in showing more films in competition with female directors but yeah I definitely think some of my actor friends would be really sad if all the ceremonies became gender neutral simply because it would mean half the chances for them to win a career-changing award um, which is maybe not the most serious thing for us to take into consideration here but it might stop some of the big award ceremonies from making the same move anyway we can all probably agree that awards are silly and yeah, I mean, I have more gripes with the big televised American ones than smart festivals like the Berlin Film Festival. Um, but as has been recently proven by the Golden Globes fiasco, some of these award ceremonies need a bit of a shake-up. And I think it's good that the Berlin Film Festival are going ahead. Did you hear about what happened with the Golden Globes? What thing specifically? Well, two big bits of news from the LA Times. One, that they discovered that there's not a single black member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, um, the people who vote for the Golden Globes. And also, you remember there was this suspicious nomination for Emily in Paris, I the most do. atrocious piece of European television ever made by Netflix. Of course I do. How can I forget shouting at my screen about that? Yeah, well, it turns out um, that 30 voting members uh, had been flown over to Paris for a luxury trip <gasps> to visit the set of Emily in Paris. That's scandalous. Yeah, and lo and behold, it got a nomination, um, whereas a masterpiece like I May Destroy You from Michaela Cole didn't get a single nomination. That is outrageous. Yeah, anyway, uh, I digress. Um, this change from the Berlin Film Festival isn't the first time an award ceremony has done something like this. The MTV Movie and TV Awards handed out their first gender-neutral awards in 2017. But it's not yet widespread. Um, apparently, the Brit Awards are also considering doing something similar. But for now, good week for Maren Eggert, who won for her role in I'm Your Man, the new movie from the director of Unorthodox, Maria Schrader. I can't wait to see that. Me neither. We've got a lot of lovely new supporters to thank this week. We've got so many people to thank that I'm a bit worried it's going to make everyone think, oh, the Europeans are fine, they're really rich. <laughs> I don't need to donate. Um, but we're honestly not really rich and a bunch of work that goes into this podcast remains unpaid. Um, so if you enjoy putting it into your ears every week, we would love it if you could consider chipping into our fund on patreon.com, uh, which helps us pay our lovely editors, among other things. The latest amazing people we have to thank are Lord Joanny. Kevin, Isaac Siegel, Richard Stewart, Gemma Nehea, Sarah Kennedy, Luca Delantonio, Joanna Sargent, 
Victoria Allett, and uh, three of our existing supporters have also decided to randomly increase their monthly donations, which is also incredibly nice. Thank you so much to Peter Selecki, my friend Julie Jamo, and uh, one of our longest running supporters, Paul Green. People are so nice. They really are. They all decided to donate a few euros or dollars or pounds each month to keep this little podcast child of ours going. So head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast to find out more about what we can offer you if you become a supporter. (laughs) Not much. Sorry. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I went to my first protest in a very long time this week for International Women's Day. Whoa crowds how was that it was exciting and really emotional and a little bit you know scary in terms of there being lots of people around but it was you know everyone was wearing masks and even though it wasn't incredible in terms of social distancing because there were a lot of people i think people were doing their best Uh, as you know i'm very susceptible generally to the like emotion of being in a crowd and people power uh but because it's been so long that i've been close to that many people i had to just refrain from like just standing there sobbing it was a lot uh but yeah paris being such an international city it felt like a super international protest uh, with people calling for gender equality in algeria and turkey and crucially in poland Uh, i saw quite a lot of red and white flags amongst the crowds in paris why is that well the last few months have seen some really big protests in poland over abortion poland already had one of the most restrictive abortion laws in europe And then in October, Poland's constitutional court issued a ruling that basically meant a near total ban. So legally in Poland, abortion is now only allowed in cases of rape or incest, or if the mother's life is at risk. Even if a pregnant woman has a scan and it turns out that the fetus has a really serious defect, she is not allowed to have an abortion. One person who has been instrumental in encouraging people to take to the streets about this is Marta Lempart of the Women's Strike Movement. She has been a tireless campaigner on abortion rights in Poland. She has in fact been charged for organising recent protests in breach of COVID restrictions and she's potentially facing up to eight years in prison now. But she was of course back on the streets of Warsaw on Monday for International Women's Day. Uh, And before that, she spoke to me and Dominic and Dominic's cardboard cat, as you'll hear at the end about why this fight is so important. Do you think the Law and Justice Party, the governing party, have this time taken a bit too far in supporting such extreme abortion restrictions? I don't care what they think. I think they are stupid and incompetent and they don't know anything. And There is no strategic planning in that. With their incompetence, I think that they didn't realize that religious fundamentalists have hijacked the country while they were robbing money and, and you know doing the whole corruption schemes. So maybe that's that. But yeah, this is no strategy in that. They are too stupid to have any strategies. They are too incompetent to have any strategies. And I don't waste my time in analyzing what might they, what you know, what are they thinking. I don't care. It's it's no use thinking of them at all. I think outside Poland, there's sometimes a tendency to see the country as going through some kind of culture war where there's liberal people in big cities and more conservative people in smaller towns in the countryside. But this abortion issue... Well, I I know, but this is just the kind of caricature that we have internationally sometimes. But just to be clear, I mean, this is not something that has just angered women in big cities, right? We are protesting in 150 cities for the last five years. So I don't know where the international community was back then, but I guess we know this, the same amount of nothing about the other countries. And uh, now we are in 600 cities. 
there are nine big cities in Poland and the rest of them is smaller and middle-sized cities. So this is ridiculous, really, uh, thinking that there is a division between big cities. Because if there was, if that was true, we would have nine cities protesting, not 600. But I guess it's easy for the populists to say that, that there is this countryside and there is this big city thing. I don't know. I don't know why people do that. Do you feel supported by the European institutions? No. I think that they don't see me as a European citizen. They see me as some Polish person from some Poland somewhere that eventually needs to be heard when, you know, things go too far. But I don't think the European politicians see me as a European, that they don't understand that they should be representing me. They don't understand that we are fellow Europeans. No, they look down on me. And that's, yeah, that's too bad. And I'm sick and tired of hashtag photos. I don't care. I want the Polish government to be brought to court, to European Court of Justice, to European Court of Human Rights. I want the commission to put all the procedures together. I want them to put complaints in the European Court of Justice. I want them to follow up on all their, you know, rule of law and judiciary independence issues against Poland. You recently addressed the European Parliament in a hearing about the situation in Poland and you told them, I'm not asking for your concern, I'm not asking for declarations, I'm demanding action as a European citizen. Do you get the impression that they are going to do anything other than expressing concern as they often do in such cases? I think they are running away screaming from the rule of law issue and from judicial independence issue. They prefer to hide over these uh, stories how sad they are about the miserable uh, lives of Polish women now. The, the women's rights only, the, the abortion right only narrative is very comfortable for them. They will do anything to avoid admitting that this is the rule of law, that this is judicial independence issue. They will tell all the sad stories how they are sad for Polish women, but they will never act on the rule of law and judicial independence issue. It was obvious during the hearing that, you know, aiming towards only the, the women's rights and abortion issue, that is easily to strike down to say abortion rights are not a thing for the European community. We cannot decide on uh, this is the, something that the, only the member countries can do. Yes, but breaking the treaties and the rule of law issue and judicial independence is absolutely something else. Could you describe for our listeners what it's been like over the last few months to stand amongst all these women marching? It's a job. It's about getting people safe because we don't have, you know, the police is very violent already and the government claims that demonstrations are illegal. So it's about safety and it's about avoiding provocations and it's about avoiding people getting hurt, mostly for me. 80% of that is that. This is a war out there. It's not like, it's not leading demonstrations anymore. It's, yeah, it's kind of just waiting for something bad to happen for most of the time. You've been charged with criminal offences that are punishable by up to eight years in jail. Yes, yes. Does it feel different this time? Do you think you could actually be headed to prison? No, I think whatever has to happen has to happen. But I think it's a signal that the strategy has changed because it's me and Clementina Sohanov and, and our friend Wojtek and some other people all over Poland. So we see that this shift, this move. So I'm not alone in this. I'm maybe, you know, the most prominent person like being written about and so on. But this is the next strategy to try to squeeze the protests down. How are you coping with that pressure? We have the whole program aimed at activists, you know, for the activists' burnout. But we also, uh, this is also aimed at people who experience PTSD. 
because of experiencing police violence or even being in danger of police violence, because this is as important as you know. Nothing happens to you, but you are in a situation where you're in danger for a long time, for example, and you know that something can happen to you. So many people experience that. So we formed this program and we have 50,000 euros budget, basically for psychiatric help and psychological help. And many, many of us are using this. I'm using also this program because it's very important for people to be in good mental health. There is perhaps a temptation for lots of people who've taken to the streets over this to feel like the situation is a bit hopeless. The government is not going to listen to these protesters. How do you think the movement can keep up momentum? And like, is there an argument to be made that all is not lost? 66% of the people in Poland believe that the protests will succeed in bringing the government down, basically. And 85% of people who participate in the protests believe that the protests will actually get its aim. Um, And this is, with the national character, it's surprising. I thought it would be 20%. I thought that people would go to the streets to express themselves, express their anger, because they felt the duty. And it turned out that they actually believe that in spite of the police and military and the propaganda and the money and this whole... Uh, system that people actually believe is going to happen. We have this big thing on the 8th of March, obviously, this is our day, with the signature collection to legalize abortion, with protests, with local initiatives, because local governments have been very supportive. And it kind of this wave opened for the cooperation between the local leaders and organizers and local authorities. It goes as far as uh, many streets and roundabouts and squares in different cities being called the Women's Rights Square or Women's Rights Roundabout. So that's how the local authorities express their support also for the issue. And then we're preparing this big action, like three steps action, April, May and June to finish in June when we have this anniversary of the 4th of June, the partially uh, free elections in 1989. And the task that we have and the thing that we feel obliged to do is to get all the people together, which is very hard because in Poland, when you have two Polish persons, you have three opinions. But if there is anyone who can bring together women's rights defenders, human rights defenders, pro-democrats, trade unions, workers, small business, academics, and so on, so on, and different professions and, and different groups, it's us. And we have to at least try because we, we might actually be the ones who can manage to do that, to do this big anti-government action. And we are, we're the help desk. We're the biggest help desk ever, I guess. With the, with the money, with the equipment, with the media coverage, with the coordination, with proposing what to do and so on, organizing actions. But it's people who do that and they just get help from us. And that's, that means that the Soviet uh, mentality has died. We don't have the management board and the, you know, the headquarters that tell people what to do. It's people organizing themselves and they know that they have the right to be provided with equipment, with the posters, with the money for the banners, with the media coverage, with everything that we have at our disposal here in Warsaw, that they are entitled to that, whatever they organize around. Because it doesn't always have to be women's rights. It can be other issues. It can be teachers organizing. It can be young people organizing against the Ministry of Education. And I'm really happy that we became this organization, that it's a national help desk for people doing things. And it turned out it works. You don't have to check what people are doing because people know what they are doing. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Is the cat alive? No, it's fake. It's a cardboard cat. Yeah. (laughs) I'll show you. It's so funny. (laughs) We really want a cat, but 
we live in a stupid oh apartment. God, I can't feel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, you should get a cat. If you want a cat, you should get a cat. Yeah, we are going to get one. This is just while we're waiting. <laughs> This is so cool. I love that. Get a cat. Get the cat. Okay, we'll get it. Thanks for the encouragement. You can tell your husband, Dominic. Like, Martin Lempart said we should get a cat, so... If we didn't have animals, the world would be the worst place ever. Really. The world would be the worst place ever. So, yeah, we should all get cats and dogs and whatever else. I was also confused by Dominic's cardboard cutout cat. It is freakishly lifelike. It's amazing. And I do have it there deliberately during Zoom calls because it's really fun to trick people. <laughs> I actually took a screenshot of it while we were recording the other day, which I will post on our Instagram account, which is at Europeans Podcast. What have you been reading or watching or otherwise consuming this week? Well, I started rehearsing this week, so I had a bit less time to sit in front of my telly than usual, but I did have time to start It's a Sin, the newish five-part drama about a group of gay men and their friends living through the HIV-AIDS crisis in London in the 80s. Not exactly the cheeriest topic, but episode one was actually more watchable than I thought. I mean, I know what's coming in the later episodes, obviously, so I imagine it will just get more and more difficult to watch, but... Everyone has been raving about it, and I thought episode one was fantastic. Ollie Alexander of the band Years and Years is totally brilliant in the leading role. It was shown on Channel 4 in the UK, but it is starting to appear in Europe at the moment. Uh, have a hunt around. I found it on the MPO Plus uh, app in the Netherlands, and it's coming to Stars Play in some other countries. But yeah, it's a great next series from Britain's best maker of gay TV, Russell T. Davis. And you know, I just discovered this week that, you know, the famous series Queer as Folk. Yeah. I just realised that it's a pun on Queer as Fuck. Poor Dominic. Do you think it's the fact that you've become such a Brussels nerd that's made you sort of immune to puns now? You're just not funny anymore. Perhaps. Or I think it's more likely that it came out when I was a child, when I was innocent and like didn't know the word the f word obviously oh sweet anyway it was quite a nice realization what a clever title of a show what have you been enjoying katie Uh, i've had enough screen time recently so i've got a couple of recommended reads this week although one of them is on a website so that does involve screen time maybe you can print it out um i really enjoyed this long read done by el pais which they've translated from spanish into english Uh, it's about jose epita mbomo who was a spanish electrician who was exiled in france after the civil war and then he used his electrician skills to sabotage the nazis interestingly he was also possibly the first black man to marry a white woman in spain wow yeah and his story is really fascinating and El País have presented it in quite a cool way. They've got lots of old photos and archive documents. So maybe don't print it out, actually. Read it on the website. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but the other thing I've been reading this week, well, actually listening to because I cheated and got the audiobook, 
That's a valid way to read a book, isn't it? An audiobook? That's fine. Yeah, you don't need to defend yourself. I think it's fine too. Um, but I've been listening to the book African Europeans and Untold History by the historian Olivette Otele. And it is great. I've been really enjoying it. Uh, as you can probably guess, it is a history of Africans in Europe and their role in shaping this continent. All of these things that we don't usually tend to think about very much when we think about European history, like the fact that Black people were very much present here in the 16th century and contributing to European culture in all kinds of ways. Uh, But this book really takes the long view. It goes all the way back to Roman times when there were, of course, North African rulers in the Roman Empire. It tackles the transatlantic slave trade, of course. Uh, And it goes all the way through to the 19th century, which I haven't got to yet. And since this is a bit of an International Women's Day special episode, it's worth adding that this is apparently the best history of Africans in Europe in terms of actually talking about women as people that existed, Mm. which is nice. Uh, Anyway, it's great. I really recommend it. And I think we should definitely invite Olivette onto the podcast. Great. Let's do it. For this week's happy ending, I wanted to talk about the oranges of Seville. Seville is famous for its 48,000 orange trees, which leave a beautiful scent in the spring and look absolutely gorgeous. But they're actually quite difficult to manage when it comes to the winter and they all start dropping off the trees. Yeah, I visited Seville at that time of year and it's really funny. There's just all these oranges all over the floor. Yeah, and it's actually quite dangerous for people to slip on or they get in the way of the cars. I mean, actually, I, I think cars can deal with oranges, but it just is quite disgusting, all the squashed oranges on the road. The city currently employs 200 people to collect five to seven million kilos of oranges from the trees in winter. Many of them end up rotting. What to do? What to do? Well, the municipal water company have come up with an ingenious idea to try and use the fruit to create electricity. Eh? Well, as everyone knows, I'm not a scientist and uh, I've read a few scientists talking about it. It's still quite baffling to me, so I'm going to try and explain it in very simple terms. As the fruit rots, it releases methane-rich biogas, which can be used somehow to generate electricity. They are now running a pilot and believe that if... 250,000 euros was invested in their plant, they could use all the oranges of the city to power 73,000 homes. Wow, all from oranges. All from oranges. The peel can then also be composted and used as fertilizer. It's a pretty great idea and actually good to make use of these oranges because Spaniards don't actually eat these oranges. What? They're too bitter. Seville oranges are incredibly bitter They are quite popular in Britain because they're used for our beloved marmalades. I was going to say, yeah. And they're used in a few spirits. But other than that, people don't just eat them raw because they don't taste very nice. So this seems like a very smart plan, although I'm not sure the marmalade makers will be so pleased. Yeah, that is a problem. Did you see that viral video that I posted on our Facebook group a few months ago about one of the machines that shakes the trees to collect the oranges. Yes, and they were just all falling down in this big orangey cascade. It was kind of mesmerising. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's really quite joyful to watch. This week, I would like to give extra special thanks to our editors, Priyanka Shankar, Andre Papavichu and Katz Laszlo, uh, because I have sliced my hand open with a can opener. And it occurred to me that I don't think I could edit a podcast, even if I wanted to, this week. So I am exceptionally glad that they're there. 
Well, no, that sounds awful. I've also damaged my finger and it's blown up for some reason. We're broken this week. <laughs> we are. We should never have a week off ever again. If our wounds don't take over our entire bodies, we will be back next week, brightening your Thursdays from now on until forever. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on the internet. Where can they find us, Dominic? They can find us on Twitter at Europeans Pod, Instagram, Europeans Podcast, Facebook, the Europeans Podcast, or email us, hello at europeanspodcast.com. We love receiving emails, even if we're not always as quick at replying as we would like to be. See you next week, everyone. Adios. Dobrodziennia. Bye.